0: We come to the last of the solas this morning, Uh, soli deo gloria. Some think that uh, God's main purpose is the salvation of sinners. That's called soteriological. But there is a higher purpose even than that that the scriptures declare and that God's purpose is doxological. That's what we sang in the doxology. It is to bring glory to himself. And if he were to share his glory with another person, he would be an idolater, because there's no one like God. He is unique. He is the creator. And so we will reflect this morning on this important phrase. Next week, Lord willing, um, Dylan will speak and bring us a uh, uh, message relevant for Christmas. He's planning on doing the prologue of John, and then the following week we will come back and take several weeks and and talk about what does it mean to glorify God? How do we do that? What does that look like? Um, every event of our lives, every moment should be spent glorifying God. How do we do that? So let me pray, pray along with me shortly, and then we will look into the revelation from heaven. Lord, thank you for each person present this morning. You know the heart, the hidden heart of each person. You know the way we think, what we're thinking right now. You know our motives, you know our actions, You know our emotions. There is nothing hidden from you. You know all things. And so as we open the book and look at the the words upon the page, the printed page, we plead for grace and mercy that you would take those words and make them a living reality in our lives. Thank you for Christ, the Savior of sinners. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. We began looking as October 31st was 504 years since the German Reformation. It started earlier in England. But there are five phrases, Latin phrases, that really systematize and summarize the essential teaching that took place there. We started with scripture alone, sola scriptura, that is the foundation. We have a book, we have a revelation from heaven, and when I preach this book I hold it over my head. This is what I am accountable to and you're accountable to. This book claims to be a word from God. And to the degree that we believe this book and obey this book, this book says we are believing and obeying the true God of heaven. So it's scripture alone, not scripture plus tradition, not scripture plus anything else. We hold to sola scriptura. And then we hold that the way a person is saved is by faith alone. Faith is not a work. Faith is empty hands holding out to the gracious gift of salvation that God provides. But you have to respond in faith and trust. Faith apprehends Christ. It believes Christ. It trusts Christ. It holds on to Him. And we talked about by grace alone. Grace is the opposite of all merit. We don't merit salvation. We can't do anything to earn it. It emphasizes that salvation is a gracious gift from God that is bestowed to guilty sinners. I have to come to the end of myself and say, there is nothing in me that I deserve other than the wrath of God. What I really deserve is punishment, the wages, For sin is death, eternal death, separation from God forever. But God in his gracious kindness has come, has paid the penalty, lived a perfect righteous life, and that righteousness from God is imputed, imparted, called justification, declared righteous to all those who believe in him. We looked at Solus Christos, Christ alone, that is the linchpin. He is an exclusive Savior. He's an all-sufficient savior. He is the center of the other four solas. He connects them into a coherent theological unit, unity that declares the glory of God. And then this morning we come to Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. That's the capstone, the aim, the purpose of all the solas. This theme is of crucial importance in the scriptures. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that God created man and that he created him for his glory, not man's glory, but God's glory. Therefore, the ultimate purpose of man, as well stated in that beginning of the Westminster Confession of Faith, is the chief aim of man is this, it is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. And the major doxologies of the Bible declare this theme. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Paul, after giving that great treatise on salvation, ends that section with that great doxology. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.17, not to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is why be, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Colossians 1.16 that Gary's been instructing us in the first hour. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities, all things were created through him and for him. We're told in 1 Corinthians 10.31, For whatever you do, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And if anyone knows that God is worthy of glory and honor, it's in heaven. And so we have this great anthem: "You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by your will." They exist and were created. The great doxology at the end of Jude, who will, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forevermore. First Peter, Peter ends both of his epistles that way. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Salvation, Ephesians 1.6, is to the praise of the glory of His grace. It's been rightly said, the vindication of God's glory is the ground of our salvation, and the exaltation of God's glory is the goal of our salvation. God's glory is the goal of all things. God's glory is the unifying goal of history. God's glory is the source and sum of all full and lasting joy. Yet attempts, if I were to ask you, what is the glory of God? What would you say to me? How would you try and define the glory of God? James Boyce, when I was reading him this past week, it was startling to me, and I think he's correct. Few words in the distinct biblical vocabulary are less understood than the word glory. What is more a perfectly correct definition, once we have it, does not always do justice to every passage under consideration. So the word glory has different connotations. We want to think about it carefully and think about the glory of God, why that is important in understanding what the glory of God means should result in us responding to that. Now, when we bless God, we did this morning in the doxology. When we bless God, what happens to God? Does he change? No. All we are doing is ascribing to God the worth, the honor, the praise. So when we bless God, we're saying right things about him. And it ought to be coming from our hearts, saying the right kind of things. Here's what we are experiencing. Here's what we're thinking. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But when he blesses us, he actually does something. He has blessed every believer with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. That's a reality when you get out of bed in the morning. He blesses you with the strength to be able to do that. You're here this morning. God has blessed you with the motivation to be here uh, this morning. So thinking similarly about what it means to bring glory to God, to glorify God. God is a glorious being. Whether I bless him or not does not change that God is blessed in his person. If I fail to glorify God, it does not change God in his person. He's still glorious. I fail in my sinfulness to recognize him for what he is. But when I give glory to God, I am not changing God in his essence, and his being. I am ascribing to him the worth, the honor, the importance, the priority that is due his holy name. That's what it means to to give glory to God. But what when we say the glory of God in his person, that's a little more difficult to try and clarify what exactly is the glory of God. So, I, I I sat a couple days. I pulled out all my theologies. I went through, looked at every word in the Bible that says glory, glorifying God, and trying to distill it in my under in my understanding. J. Barton Payne. He's uh, an uh, Old Testament scholar. He's now present with the Lord. He has an uh, excellent work on the Old Testament. He says uh, the theology of the older testament. I thought that's a good term, the Older Testament, because we do have two, and the older one is two-thirds of our Bible. He says the literal meaning of kavod, the word for glory, is weight, heaviness, importance. We know that. It's used literally of weight, and when we say that someone throws around their weight... They're thrown around their importance, often in a negative sense. But God is the weightiest person in the world. He is the one that we ought to be focused upon and what pleases to Him. In a real sense, He is the true heavyweight of the universe, and He deserves to be honored. J. Barton Payne says, God's glory is the visible extension of of His divine perfection. Did you get that? Visible, visible extension of His divine perfection. When we think about that in the Old Testament, God's glory is equated with a supernatural pillar of cloud and fire in Exodus 24. This pillar led and protected Israel in the Exodus It appeared on Sinai at the dedication of the Mosaic tabernacle. It filled the Holy of Holies. It entered Solomon's temple. And in post-Old Testament times, that's where the expression comes from when we talk about the Shekinah glory, that glory cloud. You won't find Shekinah in the Old Testament. Well, you'll find the verb shakan, which means to dwell. So Shekinah glory is when God manifests himself and reveals himself in a visible appearance. It's not all that God is, but he is manifesting, revealing that he is a glorious person. John Piper writes, The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. It is the going public of his holiness. Listen he, he has a wonderful sermon on this, and he says, no one can define fully the glory of God, but I'm going to give you a shot at it. I <laughs> said, thank you, that's why I'm reading you here. And uh, he's, he, he stressed contrasting, when we go to Isaiah 6, what does Isaiah say? What did he see in that vision? Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy. That word means separate, separate, separate. He's not only separate from all moral defilement, he is separate from all of his creation. Pantheists say, add everything up that exists and that's God. No, you add everything up that exists, that's what God created. God is separate from his his creation and he is holy. He is separate from all moral defilement. He not only does not sin, he cannot sin. He's separate from it. But when you think there what Isaiah saw, holy, 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 and you would expect it to say, the whole earth is full of his holiness. But what exactly does it say? The whole earth is full of his glory. His glory is manifesting himself. James Boyce, the external... Manifestation of God's presence that involves a display of light, radiance, or glory so brilliant that no one can approach Him. Uh, Professor Bush in Old Testament says, Glory means Yahweh Himself, but it's His very visible presence. Dr. Lowry, God's glory is a characteristic associated with his presence. It may be called a visible sign of his presence. What I'm saying in all of these, when we think about glory of God, it is something that he's manifesting himself, revealing himself in splendor. The great Baptist theologian, Augustus Strong, most seminary students don't like to read Strong because um, the print, the the print is about three font, and um, you only get credit, if you're reading someone with 14 font, you only get the same number of page credit if you're reading that. And he also throws in Greek and Latin, so I remember when I was in seminary, we had to read some out of Strong but you could apportion it. But he's, he, he's a fine uh, theologian, and he says, "'God's glory is that which makes him glorious. "'It's like the dignity and value of his own attributes.'" Um, Grudem. "'It's the created brightness "'that surrounds God's revelation of himself.'" At least that's true in the Old Testament, uh, MacArthur and Mayhew, affectionately called the white doorstop, that big, white, thick one that we're working through uh, in uh, the care group. It's the splendor, the greatness, and the magnificence of God. So I've, I've been wrestling with this, trying to think through this, and uh, Dylan walks into my into my study. Dylan has had an easy week. I'm being facetious. Um he had the last of his class from 5 to 7 in the morning, and then he had to take a whole semester in one week. Um, yeah, he was, so he, was, he I don't know if uh, Lizzie saw him too much other than during that first class, but he walks in, he, he kind of looked, said, Hey, you don't, your eyes aren't bloodshot. What's the problem? Uh, you're young. You can, you can still do that. And so I hit him off the cuff, and I go, Hey, Dylan, I'm studying this. Tell me what the glory of God is. And he goes, Well, I can tell you what Dr. Bookman says. I said, Okay, you tell me. Now, uh, some of you have, may never have heard of uh, Doug uh, Bookman. He has is, he is devoted really his life to the life of Christ, to studying it, all the gospels, put, has put together a harmony. I can't tell you how many trips he's led. Israel he's been teaching this for over 50 years and now they have the honor of having him teach at the, the shepherds and he said this majesty on display the excellence of a great teacher is to take a complex truth and make it readily available and I thought Dr. Bookman you hit it on the head the nail right on the head it is majesty on display Now, thinking more clearly about uh, the glory of God, we're going to jump to John 17, and then I'm going to go to the back door in Exodus, and we're going to work our way forward and come back to John chapter 17 to try and comprehend what is the glory of God and how we should respond. How we should respond. That's where we're going. So, turn with me again to John chapter 17. One has rightly said, I agree with that, that the highest peaks of theology in the New Testament are Romans and the Gospel of John. Uh, The early church fathers described John's gospel as an eagle. John flies like an eagle above the clouds of human weakness and gazes most keenly and steadily with the eye of the heart at the light of unchangeable truth. Now, I remind you where we're at in John chapter 17. It just follows what is called the farewell discourse in John 13 through 17. At the end of 11 and 12, Jesus has withdrawn from public ministry. Now, he says, the time has come. The time is at hand. And so chapters 13 through 17 probably took about three hours. He's in an upper room there in Jerusalem, and he is preparing his disciples for his departure. He's going to the cross. And these are the men that are going to forward the message of the kingdom of God, of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. What are you going to say to them? Well, that's what's in chapters 13 through 17. And then after he said these things in chapter 17, verse 1, he prays. What a reminder. What a reminder. He taught and then he prayed. So I remind myself that teaching is not all there is to it. You have to pray. You have to pray and say, Lord, you're the true teacher. The Spirit is the true teacher. Unless you work in our hearts, it's all to no avail. Lord, please take the Word of God and start with me. Start with me. Change me and then change us. And, and Jesus doesn't have to be changed here. He's not praying for himself. He's praying for his disciples. But he does pray for himself one prayer, and watch how crucial this is for an understanding of the glory of God. Father, six times in this in this uh, chapter 17. I, I used to hear uh, when our brother S will come, he did one of his dissertations, I don't remember if it was Oxford or Cambridge on the Gospel of John, triple entendre in the Gospel of John. <laughs> and I listen to him pray, and it's constantly, Father, O righteous Father, O holy Father. He gets it right here out of John chapter 17, and that's what Jesus is praying. O righteous Father, O holy Father, glorify your son that your that the son may glorify you he's asking god to glorify him so that he can glorify the father look at verse 5 and now father glorify me and it's emphatic you glorify me in your own presence Here it is, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, why this is so critical for an understanding of the glory of God is this. There is something about the glory of God revealed in Christ that is different during His earthly ministry than the innate glory that He had before the world was we know from John chapter 1 Christ is the creator of all things but somehow it's still glory it's glory that he has during his earthly ministry but it is different from the glory that he had as one of the beings the triune God in the past now here's the issue some will say glory is an attribute of God I think that's impossible because if it was an attribute of God and he doesn't have it anymore, then he can't be God. Because the attributes, the perfections of God are the essential qualities that make up God. So if he left some behind, when he came in the incarnation, he's leaving part of his deity behind. And and John, all the New Testament writers affirm, when God took on flesh, he combined deity to humanity, both are true, fully human. Fully divine, he did not leave his deity behind. So, it's not an attribute of God per se, it is a manifestation, an expression, or as Dr. Bookman says, majesty on display. So the majesty that was on display before the world was, and I would also say down through the incarnation, That display of majesty changed. But Jesus is praying, glorify me with the glory that I had before the world was. Restore to me that glory, that radiance, that public display of majesty that I had. Restore it. Glorify me. So... There is an in, what we call incarnate glory, and then there is, rather than just saying pre-incarnate glory, before he took on flesh, this is before the world existed, the glory that you used to have. Now, think with me careful about John 1, 14. Many of you have memorized this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and not only was it in association with God, but he puts it right up front. The Word was God. Logos, the communication of who God is. And furthermore, he created all things. Apart from him, the word, not a single thing was created. Then we jump down to 114. The word became flesh, took on flesh. And John says, we and the other disciples, we beheld we saw his glory now you read through the gospels apart from the time of the transfiguration you don't see jesus glowing with radiance now you see medieval writers always putting a halo around his head as well as they do the other people that they call saints but you don't find that in there but he says we saw his glory and that particular verb to to see is one of visibly seeing the glory of God. It's not one simply of perceiving it. They saw it visibly. But it also goes, that's one of those double meanings of the verb. They not only saw it visibly, they got it. They understood it. Not everybody who saw a visible manifestation of the glory of God got it. Some rejected it. Some refused to acknowledge it. The Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus (laughs) and When he raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus became a problem for them as well. Let's do away with the evidence. We need to kill Lazarus as well. Forget all the facts. We're just going to have our own agenda. Now, I want to go back then, back door to the Old Testament, and we're going to come back to John 17 and think more clearly about what the glory of of God is, how it is, was different during this veiling, this, this not fully revealing how glorious God is, but now His time is at hand, and He's going to be glorified at the cross. And when He says glorify Him, it's going to be a sequence of events, not simply a sing, single event. It's going to be at the crucifixion. Real death, burial, at the resurrection, 40 days later at the ascension, and he's coming back again, and he's coming back with glory, and that glory is going to be manifest. So jump back with me to this critical passage in Exodus 34, 33, and 34. We have been there before I changed this on the PowerPoint as I thought more about it instead of a refusal, actually. This, God is going to protect Moses from himself because if God were to fully reveal his, his glory, invisible manifestation, Moses, you're dead. You're a dead man. You, you can't endure that right now in the condition as even a fallen sinner so we start in Exodus 33 remember what the event is we are now uh, they've been at Sinai for about a year and now God says, okay Moses, move out with the children of Israel you're you're headed out and he says, but I'm not going with you this people are so stubborn so rebellious and Moses goes, oh Lord if you don't go with us <laughs> What are we going to do? We need your presence. So the Lord was really testing Moses at that point. And in thirty-three thirteen, 13, Moses says, If I've found grace in your sight, please show me now your ways and uh, go with us. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, don't bring us up from here for how shall it be known that I have found grace in your sight, so please go with us. The Lord said to Moses, verse 17, the very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Now Moses emboldened by the answer of God that his presence will go with him, Moses is thinking now, of even a more intimate understanding he wants to see God in all of his fullness now if you think Moses have his, hasn't seen some real manifestations of the glory of God just think when he was he fled over there in Sinai and he's leading some sheep around and he comes up and there's a burning bush, and the bush is not consumed and he He's kind of intrigued. He goes near, and he hears a voice, Moses. I'm going to get it right. Last time I said, Moses, take off your feet. No, he said, take off your sandals, your shoes. You're standing on holy ground, and I am going to call you to go and deliver my people. And if God ever calls you to do something and you have a response, I don't think I can do it. Learn from the Exodus. Moses felt the same way, but God, he equipped him. And so, boldened by that, that God is going to go with him, and he says, watch this. Here it is, verse 18. Moses said, please show me. He wants to see it visibly. Show me your glory. Now, the word does mean wait importance, but glory is not one of his attributes. It is a visible manifestation that God is glorious. He wants to see this. Now watch the response of God. I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I'll be merciful to whom I show worship. But Moses, verse 20, you cannot see my face. Face being a, uh, a term expressing often the face of God. We will see the face of God. Believers will one day in heaven. Oh, but not now, not since the fall. You, you, can't, you can't endure that. Visible expression, manifestation of the glory of God. So God tells him, okay, verse 21, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And I'm gonna make my glory pass by in a limited way. And he uses a different term rather than the face, just the back. It's a symbolic term, meaning there's a lesser manifestation here of the glory of God. But you better get over in the cleft of the rock And watch this, I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by, and then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses is going to see a visible, limited manifestation of the glory of God. So he gets over there, and we see the answer. Verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud. He stood in there and proclaimed not the glory of the Lord, He proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, the name of the Lord, you could use it like this as shorthand for all that God is in his attributes. And so he begins to spell out those attributes. Moses, you wanted to see me. You wanted to see me in my fullness. But let me tell you what you really need. What you really need is not to see me visibly. You need a revelation of who I am in my attributes and my character and who I am that you may respond to that. That's what's important. Moses, you need a sermon here from the living God, not a visible manifestation right now. So that's what he does. The Lord passed before him, revealing his back, a lesser term than his face, some type of limited manifestation of his glory. And he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, the covenantal God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping chesed, steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means clearing the guilty. And then we kind of scratch our head, how's that work? You're going to forgive sin, but... You're going to hold the guilty accountable. Well, we're going to have to fast forward all the way down to the cross to figure that one out. So, uh, the the glory of God is it's it's dangerous. It's dangerous um, for us now. You, you and I exposed, even as believers, to a full manifestation of the glory of God. The text says you can't endure it now. You, you won't live. But what I need is the name of God, all that He is in terms of Father to His children, in terms of His qualities and in attributes. People, I want to say, I, I, I've heard unbelievers, well, if God's up there, I just want to see Him go, oh, no you don't, no you don't, not in the way you just described. Uh, you, you, you will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. What you need is the revelation that God has given in the Bible of who he is, that he is gracious and that he is merciful and he forgives sin, but he doesn't bypass justice. He doesn't bypass justice. So, we come down to... um, I'm I'm running out of time. I'm just going to go through that quickly. The rejection of the revelation of God. When you look out the window, you look out there this morning as you're driving home. God is shouting at you. He is shouting at you through creation. I am glorious. I'm glorious. Psalm 19, the heavens, they reveal the glory of God. It's not the glory of God. It's a manifestation of the glory of God. He is revealing his majestic majesty. And he reveals that in creation. He reveals that in his creatures. I have to confess my hesitancy down here in Texas to learn from you Texans, but I did on Friday, a little bit. Um, my wife loves horses, and we went to a the horse uh, cutting championship. Seven hours of it. <laughs> I did take along a book, but no, just because they have breaks in between, so when there's a break in between, I'd read the book, but I, I pulled it up online. I, I was re- reading about how they how they grade the competition and what they have to do. And once they get out there, and he drops his hands off of the rein down on the horse's back, and it's all up to the horse. And it was it was majestic. I mean, to watch that horse keeping that young cow, and you know, and, and you want to get a lively one. Um, and a few of them got a zero. You know why? Because the cow got around them and it got back to the herd. Ah, you're out. I can figure that one out after a while. And these are the champion sem- well, it was the semifinals. And I'm watching this and I thought, how glorious is God to make these creatures that are able to do that. And you know what? Then why isn't is it it understood. Why is evolution so dominant? Why is the glory of God denied? Well, you go to Romans chapter 1 and it tells us it's not that the glory of God isn't clearly manifest, but there's a problem with the heart. Why doesn't it see it? Because man suppresses the truth and unrighteousness and rather than giving glory to God, it worships the creature rather than the Creator. That's the problem. We go to Romans uh, 3.23. All have sinned and continue to fall short of what? Of the glory of God. So there's not only a rejection of, of, of general revelation, there's a rejection of special revelation. Are you surprised when you when you first heard the gospel, how many of you responded to the gospel the first time you heard it? I didn't. I don't know how many times I, I, I heard the gospel. And all of a sudden, God turned on the light. And I saw myself as a guilty sinner. And I saw the glory of God in a different light, that I had fallen short of it. And I cried out and asked Him for Forgiveness of my sin. Now, I'm only going to do two of these. You're looking at this, and you go this, and you got all the next that are following. We're going to be here till five o'clock. No, you and your wife are going to be here till five o'clock. Rest of us are going home. I'm, ju- I'm just going to do two of these. Uh, uh, I want you to turn to John chapter two. And I, these these are signs. Um, John doesn't necessarily, there's four words for miracles, but what he uses is the word sign. And these signs, you should look at the sign and see the, I'm going to pronounce it this way, signification. That's not the way to pronounce it, but it's signification. What do the signs mean? You look at the sign and do you perceive what that points to? It points to the glory of God. So we go to John chapter 2, and the wedding, and a changing of water into wine. I'm jumping down to verse 11. And, and, and it's clear, the, uh, those huge water pots and water. I know some of you disagree with me, and I, I I love one of the preachers who's now in heaven that says it was changed into grape juice, but I'm convinced here it was actually changed into wine, because even the host says, wow, you saved the best wine till last, and he comes out, and it says, this first of his signs. Now, this is probably double entendre, the word arche here can mean first, but it can also mean ruling dominant because he's done other signs than this as a matter of fact John tells us if, if all the signs if every miraculous thing and all the deeds that Jesus did you come down to the end of the gospel the books couldn't contain it but these things these kind of signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that by believing in him you might have life in His name. It's a twofold—not only evangelism, but for those of us who know the Savior, it is to as we as we come to the Gospel of John and we see these things and we go, we perceive the glory of God. And when I'm told to do everything for the glory of God, it changes my perspective, and I realize how far short I follow that. So. This first of his signs, Jesus did in Canaan, Galilee, and he manifested his glory. He revealed his majesty. So the servants were there, and they watched it. They knew where the wine came from. Jesus miraculously changed water into wine. But it doesn't say they got the sign. His disciples did. They perceived that manifestation of this glorious God who was able to do that. This is God. This this is something different, different from the prophets. And John has already laid up his full Christology in the front, but as we go through these signs, he's revealing this is the Messiah, this is God. You better worship him. He's manifesting his glory. Do you see it? Do you get it? Do you perceive it? Jump down to John chapter eleven with Lazarus, and I'll just do this one quickly because here's really. It doesn't say first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh sign in every one, but I think if just looking at it, I do take he takes seven of the things that he did and says these are seven key representative. Um, issues that you ought to face, and one is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Remember, he shows up, he purposely waited and came late. Martha comes out and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus answer to her, she says, verse 24 of chapter 11, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. These are the I am, ego amy, I am sayings as well. What is the answer? He doesn't say, sorry, I was late. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You may die physically, but if you got this kind of life, You will never be separated from God forever. Do you believe this? She said yes. She calls her sister Mary. Mary comes out. She says the same thing in verse 32. Now, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And he was compassionate. And he comes up to the tomb, one of the most remarkable passages to me in the Gospel of John is Jesus wept. He wept. He's a real man. There's nothing wrong with weeping at the loss of a loved one. But we don't weep as those who have no hope. And Jesus wept, and he says, okay. Lazarus, come out good thing one says that he named Lazarus. How many people would have come out of the grave? And he came out wrapped in those linen cloths with the face cloth over it, and it says, all right, take it off and let him go. All the hype of people going to heaven and coming back and supposedly telling us what, what they saw. I, I would have liked to have been there. Hey, Lazarus, come here, buddy. Where'd you go? What happened to you? You know, none of that in there. It's just that Jesus says, "I am the resurrection and the life," and it points forward to he is the first fruits of what's going to happen. That's and Lazarus came back. And you know, and you know what some believed and you know what others did. We're going to tell the Pharisees. You know what the Pharisees said? Now we got a problem. The whole world's going after him and he's seeing these signs and too many are believing. So let's go kill Lazarus too. Now, finally, back to John 17. So what is the glory of God? It is a visible manifestation of His majesty. In the Old Testament, He was revealing it in Theophanies. It was brilliant light, and it scared people. It was frightening. Just go to Sinai. He said, Moses, you speak to us, not God. This is terrifying. One of the most stunning revelations of the kavod Yahweh, the glory of God, is at the beginning of Ezekiel. You go there and you see that vision that Ezekiel had in the first three chapters, wheels turning this way, this chariot, all these things, and you go, you're scratching it. What is that stuff? Well, it says it's the glory of God. But now, incarnation, he still has glory, but it's failed it's veiled. He's not manifesting it in a brilliant light. He is manifesting it in these signs. But now, he says, Father, glorify your Son with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 17.1, the hour has come, the time is now. So what happened? 13 through 17, farewell disciples, here's what you need to know. John 17, farewell disciples, I'm praying for you, and I'm going to give you another comforter. And then we go to 18 through 20, and what happens? They cross the Kidron, they go up there, Judas is already gone, he betrays the master, they all flee. And what seems to Jews a stumbling block, and to Greeks, foolishness, that a a person, he's the savior of the world and he dies upon a cross? And even the two criminals that were there, one on the left hand, one on the right, they're both reviling him until one came to his senses. And he turns to the other and he says, look, we're getting what we deserve. This man is getting nothing of what he deserves. He doesn't deserve this at all. And he turns to him and says, Lord... Remember me. Remember me when you enter paradise, when you enter in. And the Lord says, today you will be with me in paradise. There's the glory of God. You want to see the glory of God? Here's what we need to know, a revelation of his character. You look at the cross, you see the justice of God. You see the holiness of God. You see the wrath of God. You see, the mercy of God, the grace of God. Do you get it? Do you get it? Some look at the cross and say, no, I don't get it. I'm not even sure it really took place. I can't tell you anything better than to read the Gospel of John. You know Brother S? Many of you know Brother S. Somebody's walking across campus. He's going to study to become a medical doctor. He's being groomed for the head position, and somebody grabs him in between classes and holds on to him and wouldn't let him go and says, I got this book I want you to read. And he goes, okay. He says, I just agreed to read it. So the guy had let me go. I need to get to class. And he gets back that evening and the providence of God had bothered him. Of all his studies that he had that he told that guy that he would read it. So he opened it up, and where does he go to the Gospel of John in the providence of God? And he starts to read through. He was, he was disillusioned with Islam. It, it was during the era when we had uh, the hostages in a certain place, and he was being blamed. And, and he said, as I read, something happened. This God is glorious. This God dies for sin, and simply from reading the Gospel of John, he came to saving faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he knew Christians went to church, so he got up, he went out, and uh, went to Catholic church. He goes something wrong here, and uh, he tried he tried another one. And finally, he found where this guy was from, his Moody Bible Institute. He went up. He went up on the floors to see this guy, and he told him he came to faith and trust in Christ. And the guy didn't believe him. He said, I have never seen a Muslim come to Christ. He thought he was there. So he went down. He was dejected. He's walking across the campus. This gray-haired gentleman is walking across in a suit. He says, can I help you? He told him his story. He says, oh, I can help you. It was Dr. George Sweeting, the president of Moody Bible Institute. He baptized him. You know, that professor was so convicted he resigned his position. He went to Turkey with his wife to minister to Muslims. Where did he get it from? Read the scriptures. Behold the glory of God. Look at these Ego Amy statements. Look at how Christ is manifesting his glory. Not brilliant, shining light, but his deeds and his works, verifying the Old Testament scriptures. This is God. Your eternal destiny bears about whom do you think he is. And if you will humble yourself before him, he will save you for time and eternity. Martin Luther said, it's not sufficient for anyone And it does him no good to recognize God in his glory and majesty unless he recognizes him in the humility and shame of the cross. Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness on the earth. That's what was manifest at the cross. We never truly glory in him until we have utterly discarded our own glory. We need eyes. We need eyes more than anything else. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So I ask you this morning, have you seen the glory of Christ? Stephen saw it post-exaltation. Saul saw it who was to become Paul. That blinding light from heaven accompanied, have you seen the Christ? It's here in Scripture. Believe upon him, and he will take care of your sin, forgive you, and give you righteousness from heaven for time and eternity. And if you have done that, how are we changed? Here's here's how we're changed. By beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, we are changed from one level of glory to another. Read the book. Read the book with a humble, teachable attitude and say, Lord, I need to be changed. I need to be brought into greater conformity until that glorious day when he returns in glory... And we will see his face one day if you have believed in him. Trust him. Trust him for time and eternity.